What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode six of the Trumpet Summit. My name is John Raymond, and I'm your host. Today, we are talking shop with somebody who I think is at the forefront of what's going on today in jazz and modern music. I'm talking about the incredible Keon Harold. And what's amazing to me about Keon is not only what a ridiculous trumpet player he is, but the fact that he really got his start in the industry as a producer for hip hop and R&B artists. I mean, literally his very first gig that he ever got was with Common, <laughs> right? That's amazing. He's played with everybody from 50 Cent to Jay-Z to Bilal to D'Angelo to Robert Glasper and Charles Tolliver and tons of other heavyweight jazz musicians. He also played all the trumpet parts in the Miles Davis movie called Miles Ahead with Don Cheadle that came out a few years ago. That was Keon playing everything, right? His most recent solo album is called The Magician. came out a couple years ago. It's incredible. You guys got to check that out if you haven't already. So anyways, we got into a really great conversation about a lot of different stuff. Uh, in particular, it was fascinating to hear him sort of unpack how his artistic vision and his playing has evolved over the years. And we also got into a lot of really interesting stuff about how his life as a producer has influenced his trumpet playing and vice versa. Some really cool stuff that I think you guys are going to love. So as always, thanks for checking out the podcast. I think you guys are going to love this conversation. Without further ado, here's the great Keon Harold. All right, time for a shameless plug. There aren't any sponsors for this podcast, so if you want to support what I'm doing, one way that you can do that and actually get something out of it is by going to my website, john-raymond.com, and picking up a PDF or a hard copy of my new book called The Jazz Trumpet Routine, which is a fundamentals book geared towards creative improvisers that is essentially designed to rethink how we go about practicing and approaching fundamentals from the perspective of a jazz trumpet player. Okay. It includes over 175 different exercises that are designed for players of all ages, all ability levels, as well as for those who have any amount of experience in jazz or improvisation. More importantly, though, the book is going to help you develop an approach and a concept for how to do those exercises in a way that mirrors the improvisation process so that fundamentals and improvisation become one and the same. But the best part is that every single exercise comes with a call and response style play along recording that you can practice with so that you can hear an example of how it should sound and then imitate it yourself. And this is the whole idea behind the book is to develop such a vivid concept of how you want something to sound and then simply play what you hear, right? Trumpet playing is really meant to be that easy. So check it out, john-raymond.com. I'd appreciate your support. Man, it's so great to finally connect. Thanks so much for doing this, Keon. I really appreciate it. So I wanted to start with a question for you, and um, it really comes from this. When I listen to you, one thing that really strikes me is I feel like you are unashamedly doing your thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that you can't hear other influences of people in your playing, but I never get the impression that you're trying to sound like anybody else 
and I've got so much respect for you in that. And I guess I'm wondering, like, is that something for you that you've been really conscious about over the years, or has it come natural to you? Uh, I don't know. Just tell me a little bit about that for you. Man, the idea of sound to me is everything because it's what we do. We are sonic, I would say, scientists um, and engineers, um, especially the trumpet. The trumpet is the next best thing to a voice, if you ask me. So yeah. when it comes to hearing things, I mean, I'm from St. Louis. So, you know, when I think of St. Louis, I think of Miles Davis, I think of Clark Terry, I think of Russell Gunn um, and people like that. Um, Lester Boy, um, people like that, mm -hmm. um, who were always invested in having a sound. So anytime I hear, um, you know, music, anytime I've heard the trumpet, it's like I've always been like blown away by sound. So, you know, so much so that I would always try to emulate the sound when it, when it comes to Miles, when it comes to Freddie Hubbard, when it comes to Clifford Brown and Lee Morgan and, you know, and book a little, you know, I literally would invest so much time in trying to sound like them, getting all the nuances, getting all the, you know, the nooks and crannies of what they were trying to do. But in that honesty, you know, like not even trying to, um, you know, sugarcoat it at all. I was literally trying to be, you know, Woody Shaw. But for something to me click that, okay, I was really looking for those you know, those building blocks to create myself. I look at the idea of sound like building a transformer or a Voltron. Um, <laughs> yeah. I know that might be, you know, too old for some people, but the idea of a Voltron was, you know, these, you know, these are power rangers, any of those kind of things that would create like a Zord, like you got these five pillars. So for me, it was always Miles, Freddie Hubbard, Clifford Brown, um, you know, those are the main three. And then it would be, you know, Kenny Dorham, um, harmonically, then it, it would be, um, you know, uh, Fast Navarro. And it, it would be all these other people yeah. that were amazing that always made me be like, yo, those people are so honest. Whenever I create my sound, I want to be as honest as them. So for me, mm -hmm. the idea of if, if you choose honesty, you will, you will reflect honesty. So in my sound, um, you know, I've always, you know, like for me, I could, I could tell you, like, I'd be playing and I'd be like, man, I'm really thinking about Clifford Brown. And you'd be like, eh, that doesn't really sound anything, <laughs> anything like Clifford Brown. It sounds like you, you know, yeah. but that's my honesty. It's, it's what I've taken. And, you know, it's my perception of what his honesty is. And I've, you know, been practicing and, and, and playing so much that it's now become my reality that I sound like me um, mm. in, in a way, um, whether that be, you know, from the, from the standpoint of just playing, you know, long notes, um, playing with vibrato or without vibrato or the articulations or the harmonic um, inflections and, and, and innuendos, all of those things. I'm again, I've been so caught up with, you know, respect for the, for the elders that, you know, it's come to me. It's like when you talk to your parents, um, your parents, you know, in the beginning, they give you all these things and you're like, man, I don't want, I really don't want to hear that. Or I'm, I'm tired of hearing that. And then after a while, you know, you have your child 
And all of a sudden you find yourself saying the same thing. You find yourself um, really um, empathizing and really understanding what your parents meant after a while. And then at that point, your style of parenting starts to happen. Um, And you've taken the good and you've put out the bad. You've taken what you needed and you've, you know, you know, you've um, digested it into something beautiful for yourself, something beautiful for, you know, the next people to listen to. So that's what that's 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 the way I see sound as a, you know, a collective, you know, intake of dopeness, collective intake of amazing beauty. You know, you listen to it, you live with it, you transcribe it, you you spit it out. You like it. Sometimes you can get to it. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes it takes more time to understand harmonically or to 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 repeat that kind of articulation and to repeat those kind of leaps and octaves from Woody Shaw. But at at you know at some point, you make it yours and you make it how you can connect to it. And and after that, I I feel like the honesty is um you know is is an inevitability. Mm, yeah. I love that. That's good. So who were some of the first people that you got really deep into when you were coming up back home? <laughs> you gonna you probably gonna I don't I won't say you you won't I won't say you'll laugh, but you'd be like, interesting. Um I grew up in a drum and bugle court. That's the way I started playing. My grandfather owned a drum and bugle court, so all of his grandkids had to learn how to play the horn. So I started off on a two valve bugle. Um, for years, I didn't really start playing trumpet till I was like 11 or 12. So before that, huh. it was two valves. Obviously, it's the same technique, but it was interesting. And it's in the key of G. So if you press down the third valve on the trumpet, you could play like a bugle. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's kind of a trick. So anyway, yeah. So anyway, the people who I used to listen to, because my grandfather would be like, man, you should listen to Maynard Ferguson. So I wow. wanted to be like Maynard Ferguson for a long time. So MacArthur mm. Park was very special. I would call the jazz station every week and be like, can you play MacArthur Park? Or can you play, you know, Birdland? You know, because I would, I would just want to hear those things. Cash screaming and, <laughs> and playing, but at the same time killing. Um, you know, Maynard was huge for me. Um, all of the Duke Ellington trumpet players, Cat Anderson and and and, and everybody just seeing just amazing virtuosity on the trumpet because before I used to want to play high and that's that's what it was to play the first soprano in the drum and bugle chord you play high you know um man I feel like you're speaking to like every young trumpet player (laughs) like all of us when we were that age you know like man I I just want to play high man I just want to play like Mater man man I resonate with everything you're saying and I'm thinking like I bet everybody was like this to some extent bro for real. Let me see. It was Maynard. Then it was, um, who was it? Hmm. After Maynard, Cat Anderson, Clark Terry. Because um, then at, at some point I heard that the record with Clifford Brown, um, with Clark and Maynard. And then I heard Clifford Brown. It was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because those cats were incredible on that recording. But Clifford Brown was just... Uh. Sheesh, man, it's it's like a whole other thing. You know? <laughs> leaps and leaps and bounds on on something else musically. Um, salt, just I don't know. I don't even know how you you judge that or put it in. in, in I don't even know how you package that. But Clifford Brown was just just a special being. So when was that for you? 
like when did Clifford come into the picture? Probably when I was like, I don't know, probably when I was like 13. Okay. 12, 13. Yeah, yeah. Because um, at, at one point, it was like I was playing. I started playing when I was like six or seven. Then family life started happening. My, my, my parents, they divorced. I stopped playing. I wanted to play baseball. Um, you know, so I played baseball for a couple of years because the the drum and bugle course season is in the summer. That's also baseball season. So I chose that mm-hmm. um, for a while, but then I came back to it. And when I came back to it, I would practice eight hours a day. So no matter what, eight hours a day, I would sit on my steps in the front yard. Matter of fact, my neighbors from back then hit me up on Facebook. Be like, you know, you owe me money because you drove me crazy. <laughs> you know, so at that time I was listening to everything. My grandfather would be like, yeah, you know who you need to listen to? Winston Marsalis. <laughs> <laughs> Winston. Winston Marsalis. Wow, that's amazing. You no, know, nah, you know, but you know, Winton at that time he would he would put me on my grandfather was one of the person who was hipping me to the young cast. I can remember being at his house watching BET and seeing a young Roy Hargrove play oh, and being wow. like, wow, that was incredible. You know, huh. um, just at that time. So that was all that, all those kind of things were happening. And that was before I re- even got into jazz. These were just things that my grandfather would be like, you know, you should think about that. And then he would talk about his cousin, Eddie Randall. Eddie Randall is the person who had a, a band called the Blue, the Blue Devils in St. Louis, which is Miles mm. Davis's first band that he ever played in. So, you know, it was a strong connection to music, um, you know, from the standpoint of drum and bugle corps in St. Louis, in Ferguson, in Kenlock, where my grandfather basically stopped being a police officer to, to educate kids, to give kids like a discipline in music and a real education. Because mm-hmm. we were, like, it was serious. Like you asked about who I used to check out. My grandfather loved the Count Basie Orchestra. So we would play, I can't stop loving you. Mm, this could be yeah. the start of something big and stuff like that. So, you know, I was always blessed to, to, to hear the good stuff. You know, going back to the first question you asked about like, how do you build sound? And I think the, the, the most important thing is what's curated, <laughs> like what's, what's, mm. what you get, what yeah. you eat, it's your diet. Of, of good music, of, of, of good art. So, you know, I was blessed from an early age, you know, in a musical family to, to get good stuff, you know? Yeah. And I feel like there's such a huge difference between that, like what you're talking about, as opposed to like exposing young kids to the academic side of the music, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, no, if you just hear it and you're around it, and it's like you said, like, that's your world that you live in. There's not going to be anything else, you know, like you don't have to overthink it. You're not going to overanalyze it. You're not going to make it too academic. It's just like, yeah, this is what it is. Exactly. It's, 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 it's my, my, my man, Don Boyer, who used to work with Michael Jackson, plays bass with Michael Jackson. You say, listen, ain't nothing to talk about. That's what he used to say about any good record. He was saying, ain't nothing to talk about, man. Yeah. You know, the theory comes after the music. It doesn't come before, it comes after. It's after somebody says, that was incredible. Now let me write about it. Let me give you my educated guess about what that really was. Yeah. You know, you can try to get close to understanding or putting it out there, but listen to that. That's Clark Terry's sound. Listen to that. That's Clifford Brown. 
Listen to that. That's Miles. Listen to that. That's, you know, that's Louis Armstrong. Listen to that. That's Booker Little. Can you hear those crackling? Can you hear all those, you know, those beautiful nuances that, you know, you can't write this shit down. It is what it is. And maybe it's the way their mouth is formed. Maybe it's the way, you know, they they hold the trumpet. Maybe it's the way that <laughs> maybe the mouthpiece wasn't big enough or it was too big. You know, all of those nuances, maybe his valves were sticking. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's always some, you know, ridiculously weird reasoning why that shit was incredible. So, you know, so it's better to just expose yourself to incredible stuff and then think about it later. Feel it, feel it first, take it in, digest it, ingest it, you know? Yeah. And I feel like now more than ever, probably, we're in a time where like I don't want to just say that a kind of exposure to the music, but like that kind of education of like listening and responding to it. It's not the norm, mm -hmm. you know, like everything is so standardized and black and white and rigid. And, and it just takes all the capacity for younger students, especially to experience the music that way out of the picture because they don't think about anything else like that. You know, mm -hmm. I, th I think, you know, which is, I don't know, it's the blessing and the curse of having access. Because access, we have access to everything. I remember growing up when I had to go to the, to the record store and I would have to sit at the stations and um, pick a CD that I was going to get. So it was either going to be Empyrean Isles, I'm either going to get that, or I'm going to get... Um, what up jump spring or something like that mm. you're not going to get them both because i only got like eight dollars or ten dollars that i've been working for right so when i got that it meant so much to say i'm going to spend this time i'm gonna I'm dig deep into this record i'm gonna dig deep and you know when i'm ready when i'm you know cut some more grass cut some more lawns get some more lawn allowance i'll go get another one and it wasn't like, you know what, let me just pull it up on YouTube. It wasn't in YouTube. Right. Let me just, you know, look on Spotify and check out the new records that just came out today or, or iTunes. Let me stream those. It wasn't like that. So an appreciation for, for, for um, what one has is very important. If you have too much, sometimes you can't appreciate, them, you can't appreciate specific things because you have it all. So if you take the time, mm. I I don't know. It's, it's I don't know. To me, it's it's kind of like what's going on in race relations right now. Um, we had a pandemic before people didn't really have to pay attention to it, but you know, with a pandemic, you have to lit literally sit and think about it and say, you know what, that shit is fucked up. Mm. That's disgusting. That's terrible. What if that was my son? What if what if that was my nephew, or my cousin, or my brother? or my daughter or my niece or my, you know, my family member, I love them too. So even though we're different, let me take a, a closer look at that. Like before we're, you know, with, before a pandemic, we're always moving. We don't have time for anything, you know, and which is very important. It's, it's, it's interesting to me. It's the same way in music and appreciation for for the, for the specific recordings that we have. There's so many great recordings, you know, um, out there, but, there's so many great ones that you just don't pay attention to any of them. <laughs> mm. Not, not deeply. So, yeah, no, for sure. So did you have any like t-shirts growing up or were you pretty much self-taught? Um, for a long time. 
Um, I taught myself um, because it was, it, I thought the journey was, was mine. So I would listen to the recordings. Like I can remember um, like listening, like learning about the jazz station. My brother told me that 88.7 WSIE jazz, F, you know, jazz FM, they playing all the jazz. So I remember with my audio tapes um, and, and a tape deck recording all the solos that came on, on on the radio. So I remember recording like Clifford Brown, the beginning and the, and the end, recording what is this thing called love and the, and the jazz guy talking about Clifford Brown and calling him Brownie for the first time. Like hearing all these things and me saying, you know what? I want to play like that. So hmm. my first initiation to playing jazz was was realizing at an early age that jazz was a language, just like we speak. Um, so I felt the most normal thing to do because in the drum and bugle core, a lot of the time we were learning by ear because we were so young, we weren't reading it. It was just like they, somebody would teach it to you and you, you would learn it sure. and you would grow. After a while, you know, we would read, but in the beginning it was like, okay, play this. Play it, play it. We're gonna learn on Broadway. Dun, dun, dun. Like, yeah. we learned it. Like, okay, I got it. So I applied that same rule to when I started hearing, you know, um, the jazz stuff. So I started transcribing without even knowing what the name was. Hmm. Um, so for that, everything that I needed, that I wanted to be able to do was already on the record. So I just learned that. Um, I didn't need a teacher to tell me that. Um, so, so for years I would do that. I didn't really have a, a, a straight up teacher till I was probably like a junior in high school. And then I started studying with um, um, Susan Slaughter, the principal trumpet playing the St. Louis Symphony. Hmm. Um, yeah, I've, I've had some, some great teachers over, over the years, Susan Slaughter and Laurie Frank, um, Charles Tolliver, <laughs> um, and Winton. Some, and you know, just more some mentor stuff. So, yeah. yeah. So when you started studying with folks, whether it was Susan Slaughter or Lori or whoever you were getting with, uh, like what kind of stuff did they have you do? And, and how did those lessons go? I mean, for me, I'll be honest, I, I wasn't the greatest student because I was always focused on what I was doing. Um, so with Susan, it was more legit. So we'd be doing like the Gedeke. We'd be doing all of these, trying to learn these um, different articulations. It helped me a lot. And she kind of changed my embouchure a little bit um, because I was like basically biting into my lip. Um, oh, <laughs> man. So that is what she helped me. But what she appreciated, which I loved, was, okay, you already have a sound. So we don't have to do with that. We just have to get you to be able to maintain this sound through a whole set, mm. not just one song, you know, and I want you yeah. to be able to, you know, play trumpet for a long time and not literally eat your lip off. <laughs> so, right. Um, so, you know, we were, we were doing all of this stuff. We were doing the Clarks. We were doing, you know, she would be bringing in stuff that she had learned directly from Arnold Jacobs, <laughs> like just that kind of stuff, mm. which was, which at that time I really didn't have, I didn't have an understanding who that really was, you know, um, but I was still getting the getting the nutrients though. Um, so that that was a beautiful, beautiful time. I studied with her for probably like 
like a year, you know, before I moved to, before I moved to New York. Okay. And then um, with Lori, I was doing the Caruso stuff, um, which was incredible. Um, and she's the trumpet doctor, so. Yeah, man. Just amazing. Man, so you just mentioned something that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you were talking about being able to last through a whole set, you know? And, man, when I listen to you, all I can think about is like, man, this dude is putting out some fire all the time. <laughs> like, I'm thinking, how does he hang in there like that? Like, I know for me, if I'm just being honest, like, if I do that for too long in a set, man, I, I'm toast. Like, and I feel like I've built up some endurance myself, you know? You're amazing, bro. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> but I guess I'm wondering, like, like, what over the years has helped you with that specifically? Because... Cause you go hard when you play, man. That's a fact, um, man. The most, the most basic things we do as trumpet players: long tones, lip slurs, um, and you know, trying to be consistent in articulation. You know, for the most part. And the other part is being able to really hear what it is that you're trying to play. Um, if, if, if that makes sense, that's kind of weird, but if you can no, hear totally. it, you're going to always go to it. Um, yeah. And you're not going to be reaching for it or anything. Exactly. Right. You know, so if, if, if you hear it already, you're going to, you're going to naturally go to it. You will teach yourself. That's, that's what I've learned that you will teach yourself if you hear it already. If you hear it, you will teach yourself how to make it happen. You know, it's like we're we're all inventive in that way. We're all sonic engineers in that way. Um, sometimes if you're trying to play somebody else's shit, you might miss it. But if you can get to a place to where you're like, okay, I know how to play through a two five one pattern. I know, you know, <laughs> I know how we're approaching this altar chord. I know. So if you drilled into yourself that, okay, now I figured out how I'm going to play through that two five pattern how I'm going to approach this, um, this progression. Um, it's hard to miss yourself, but if you're trying mm. to do what somebody else has already done, it's going to be easier to miss. I think, mm. I think. <laughs> no, I totally, man. <laughs> I love that. That's great. I mean, I guess what we're ultimately saying is like, you just have to get to a point where things are so internalized that you don't really have to think about it or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's not even that you're not thinking about it, it's that you've thought about it. And, mm. you know, um, it's like, <clears throat> hmm. I mean, think about it. I guess the context of improvisation. We talk about improvisation all the time. Like every time we play, I don't know, I remember April, that it's gonna be a different solo. Yeah, it'll be pretty different, but for the most part, you know your angles for the most part. You know how you hear, you know, B minor, E7, A. You know what that is. You know what it feels like. Mm. So how do you get to a place to where you can express yourself in a way that you don't have to play the hard thing that you that you you've worked out? It's like, how do you become a melody? You know, how do you become a melody mm. throughout any kind of chord change? You know, how do you how do you get to that? How do you get to a point to where it doesn't sound technical anymore? 
No, I'm not. You know, I'm I'm playing a tritone substitution, but it's so natural sounding that it's like, man, that was like, I could have sang that. You know, yeah. how how do you get to that point? So, and to me, it's um, I don't know. I want to be able to do that, um, and I think it's the it's the um the normalizer for ego because ego says I must play all the bad shit that I know mm, on right. every solo in front of everybody. Um, and our narcissism <laughs> makes us want to do that. But the humility says, you know what? I want to speak to the people. I know the theory. I know, you know, the nuances of what this instrument can produce, but what can I do? Um, how do I get to a point to where I can speak, you know, my, my soul to your soul? And honestly, that's where I'm trying to go as an improviser. Cause it's like, how, how many, mm. how many notes do we have? How many chords are there? <laughs> you know, it's not that many, it's 12 notes, yeah. you know, and can, can, you know, conventional Western harmony, you know, you got a few different chords. You got minor, major, diminished, you got the inversions. Okay. Which end up being the same thing over and over again. So how do you talk to the people? You know, where's the melody? Can you find the melody throughout these chord changes is is, is where I search, where, where I'm trying to go. Mm. That's good, man. I really like that. I really like that. So I was also going to ask you, um, you know, after moving to New York and getting in the scene a little bit and starting to meet some people and being mentored by some people and all that, did you have any moments for you where you felt like, you were hitting a wall in any way, like either from a trumpet kind of technical standpoint or also from like a musical standpoint too? Yeah, man. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, and I actually have not been asked that a lot. Um, but there's a interesting answer to it. I didn't do my first record until... I will say 2011, um, though I've been on a bunch of different records, hundreds um, of all kind of music, jazz, hip hop, R&B, doesn't even matter. Um, but I didn't do my first one until I was um, like 30, over 30. And then I did my last one in 2017. I got some new music coming out now, um, very soon. I'm looking forward to that. But the idea of the wall for me, is because I, t I take in a lot. My first professional gig, even before I started doing jazz gigs, I was working with Common. So that mm -hmm. changed my whole horizon. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I had a dream of moving into New York City and starting the next great quintet, you know, pattern after Nick Payton, pattern after Roy, pattern after Winton, yeah. you know, doing that same, you know, role. Potentially, I wanted to, you know, work in Lincoln Center and all of that, but my whole you know, whole imagination of what was going to happen changed, you know? Mm. Um, so in the context of it all changing, it took me a long time to basically assem assemble what it is that I want to say, because I was, mm. because I was given so many different things, um, you know, playing with, you know, Mary J. Blige and Jay-Z and Common and Most Def, and then at the same time, working with Charles Taliban, working with Billy Harper and working with Marcus Strickland and Robert Glasper and all these different people was, you know, 
it was a lot. It was almost like a culture shock from 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 my artistic psyche, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. And it was just like I didn't I I wasn't the person that was like, you know what, I'm just gonna record just for the hell of it. So for me, the walls would come when it was like, I don't really know how to use my production because I was producing for 50 Cent at the time, producing for a lot of different people, like literally making beats, not playing a trumpet at the same time. But at the same time, every night I'd be going to Smalls to sit in. I'd be going to, you know, Cleopatra's Needle or wherever doing sessions and playing. But at the same time, I was like, man, I'm not really doing any gigs. Not that I wanted to be doing certain kind of gigs, but I was literally producing major records. And it was like, okay, so how do I put those things together? Like mm. in in a way that expresses me honestly. Yeah. So I'm always looking for honesty. So it took me a long time to to put the beats together in a way that would work with what I was doing, you know, sonically with the trumpet. Um mm. and and that that was a, you know, definitely the kind of thing that people be like, yo, you should just record. You should just do another record. You should just do this. Yeah, I, I could record right now. I could do I could have done 50 records. It doesn't even matter. The point is, I didn't feel um, honest like I had put it together um, for myself. So that is a wall um, that I had to, that I have to continually um, um, think about and continually, you know, I fight against over and over again because I want to be authentic. I want to, I want to be real. I want to, I want it to be something that's honest, that is not contrived or something that I'm, you know, again, at this point in my career, I'm working on saying things in a way that are honest to me. Mm-hmm. I know what the bad shit is. I know what the smooth shit is. Mm-hmm. I know what the dope shit is, but what is mine? What do I have to say? And how do I put all those things together is, is, is where I'm living right now. So that, that was a roadblock for me, honestly. Man, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, I, I really resonate with that personally. Uh, and, and I feel like that's something that's probably a pretty common thing that a lot of people are going through right now. You know, like we've come up in the age that, like we talked about earlier, like where the accessibility to all these kinds of music is there. And, you know, we're all trying to put these influences together into one thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess in some ways it's like you're kind of creating something that hasn't really been there before, you know, yeah. and maybe that's, yeah. that's kind of why it takes longer or something. Um, so I'm curious, like trumpet wise or improvisation wise, like, was there like a breakthrough moment at any point with any of the kind of stuff you're talking about? Um, I guess... I don't know. We have, we always have the, the, the idea of the imposter syndrome, you know, as a, as a, as a reality. And for me, I've been blessed to be working with the best in every field. So how, how do I do something that has to do with hip hop and it be good enough for common to be like, yo, that shit is dope. Mm -hmm. Or how do I play, you know, something that has to do with jazz for Charles Tolliver to be like, you know what, you want to some shit. You know, how do you do that? Because sometimes when you try different things, it kind of lacks or it, it doesn't have all of the elements. And it's just kind of like, that's an interesting try, but keep trying. Mm, so yeah. I got to a point to where 
I'm like, man, I'm just gonna let it all hang out and I'm gonna push it and I'm just gonna try and I'm just gonna go with it. Um, because again, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm <laughs> Erica Badu says I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my shit. <laughs> I, I, I believe that and I really am when it comes to putting something out um, and, and putting out a project or putting out a song or putting out a, a, a vibe or putting out whatever. So I got to a point to where I could hear it myself. Other people could always hear it, but when I, it took me a while to hear it from myself. Mm. And that was when I started shutting out a lot of things. Cause again, there's, there's the point when, when you have accessibility, there's a point when you've done all the research and you've done, you know, you've, you've learned the technique, you've done it all, but it gets to a point to where you, where there, there's a breaking point that says, okay, now it's time, mm. you know, and you just have to be honest with yourself. And it's like, you know, a bird leaving the nest that says, okay, now it's time to fly. So for me, it, it took a lot longer. Not that I couldn't have done it earlier. It just took a lot longer for me to be honest with it and walk in it. I'm the type of person where I I, I need to I need to have an understanding <laughs> and I need to <laughs> my dad used to always say, and all of your getting, get an understanding. So mm. it took me a long time to get that. And that and that's honest. It really is honest that I don't know. I have so much music that I could put out right now, but I'm not okay with it yet. And sometimes people do stuff before it's okay. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then you'd be like, why, why, why wasn't it received well? Well, yeah, for sure. Think about it. It wasn't ready, you know, or you could have, you know, put some more thoughtfulness into it, or you could have waited for the right band, or you could have rated for the right, you know, I don't know, maybe your technique wasn't there yet or whatever, and it wasn't received in the way it, it, it shouldn't have, it should be. But I'm kind of rambling about that whole process of, you know, knowing when and knowing when, when timing. I guess the biggest thing is that we, that we are up against and the most important resource that we have is time and knowing when the right time is for you. Mm. For me, the right time wasn't, you know, when all of my, contemporaries were putting out records like nothing. It was, oh, I got it, no problem, no problem. It was like, I had to be honest and say, you know what, it's not, my, it's, it's, it's not the time for me yet. Mm. That's a hard, that's a hard one. Yeah, totally. No, that's really good. I mean, I feel like it takes a serious amount of like self-awareness to have that realization, mm -hmm. you know? Cause then it's like, you're not thinking like, okay, I gotta do what everybody else is doing. It's like, no. I've really got to search within myself, try to figure out like what time is it right now? You know, like what am I supposed to be doing? Like that's, that's where it's at, I guess. Yes, absolutely. So I had another question with regards to, I guess your life as a producer, because mm -hmm. as you were saying, that's kind of where you got your start. Like that's where you were starting to get gigs early on. Mm. So, I guess I have a like a two part question. Um, how has your experience as a producer informed your trumpet playing? Hmm. And the second part, I guess, is how has your trumpet playing and you know sense of improvisation and musicality on the horn influenced you as a producer? Amazing question. Um, 
the idea of production for me has influenced me as as a jazz musician, as an artist, as a as a player, um, in a way that again, I guess a thread in this conversation has been about curation. Um, as a producer, you need to know what works and what doesn't work in this particular four bars, this particular eight bars, this particular thirty-two bars. You know, from from one minute to two minutes to to four minutes of a song, mm. you got to get rid of all the fat. You got to be able to do that. So when I, when I think about the idea of production, in the context, I would think of how Miles Davis would play a solo. You know, you got to have a certain amount of space. You got to have a certain amount of um, harmonic content, melodic content, um, and and then something that has nothing to do with all. Your, your imagination has to you know, feel that. So how do you put all those things into into one thing? So for me, improvisation affected my production in that way. Mm-hmm. And also production in, has influenced my improvisation in that way. One that says that, no, you don't need to play everything right now. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, <laughs> like shit. Yeah, you can play all the four shit you want. Yeah, you can play all the, um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever I don't know. It's it's so many things that you can do. I can show all my range. I can show all my technique. I can show that, you know, I don't know, I can hold a note for a billion counts. But what does that matter if you only have, you know, 30 seconds to show, if you only have four bars to play a solo? What can you do in that time? Yeah. You know, so the idea of production, um, when I would have to solo on certain records for four bars, you gotta be able to play something that's thoughtful and profound. That can last the stand. Um, that can last the test of time. So how do yeah, you do that? Totally. How do you do that without, um, you know, without all of that fat? And how do you, how do you um, edit? I guess that's what the word I wanted to say. Um, you have to be an ultimate editor. Um, mm-hmm. The idea of production meets improvisation. It comes down to editing. Um, when and how appropriate. Is it for you to use certain things that you have under your fingers? Sometimes we feel we must use it all. You don't have to use it all. Just say a melody. I guarantee that that will go a lot further than the deepest shit that you've thought about musically. Totally. Because the melody, you can sing. And, you know, for the most part, not all the time. Sometimes we like to do shit for ourselves. But for the most part, music is about what other people perceive. So share with people. So how do you do that? I know for a fact that anytime I've heard Miles Davis, it's always, he's sharing. Anytime I've heard Coltrane, he's sharing. Anytime I've heard Freddie Hubbard, you know, they're sharing. They're they're sharing. Like, Mm. you know, they're not doing this shit just for the hell of it. It's really a moment that says, oh, wow, damn. And you're connected. So they've been ultimate editors in that way. So Mm, from the context of, you know, their comp, and I guess when I think of, Production, I'm, I'm thinking of composition. So the great composers are ultimate editors. The great improvisers are ultimate editors. You know what I'm saying? So I guess what I'm trying to say is you have to be an ultimate editor. Mm, totally. You know, you, you don't have to use everything. Your book, your book is not 8,000 pages. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how many pages did you have in your book before, before it was done? You <laughs> right. know, you had to edit that stuff out, get, get the real deal. Yeah, totally. Nope. You're spot on, man. 
and again, it sort of taps into this like self-awareness thing that we were talking about. Um, and I guess also this like humility thing that you were talking about too, you know, like the ego says, I got to put all this stuff in all the time. But on the flip side, humility says, no, I only need what's there, you know, and I only need what's going to make this right and serve this musical moment. Man, listen, what, 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 here's, here's a funny thing that I've experienced. I took this girl out one time. <clears throat> She's amazing. I took her out and I went to this spot and I spent like a lot of money, like probably like on a dinner. It was like, I don't know, a few hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah. And by the time the, the night was over, it was cool. We were all good. And she was like, you know, I'm actually a cheap date. <laughs> Think about how many, how often we do so much to realize that, oh, I could have just took it easy. Hmm. You know, obviously there's a time and season for every purpose, but most of the time you don't have to display your fucking technical prowess in front of, you know, the audience down in Smalls or Mezzarola or wherever, or at the Blue Note, anywhere. You mm -hmm. can just connect by just playing melody. Yeah, totally. That's what, that, that, that's what captures us all, you know, a melody. That's what we remember, the melody, mm -hmm. you know? Shit, if, you, if you're working on some fourths and shit, make sure you, you, you learn to curate it in a way that is melodic, not that it's showing how good I could play the horn. Mm -hmm. Make sure it's something that says, hey, hmm, that was melodic. That was interesting. Totally. Wow, how, how the hell did you do that? And then when, when somebody picks it up and tries to transcribe it, you realize that, oh, that actually had some soul in it. It wasn't that this mm. person was just trying to prove that they could play that, you know? Yeah, so. totally, man. So to spin off this a little bit, um, you know, I feel like there's this theme of timing that's been all over this conversation. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. And timing for you right now is really interesting because you've gone through all that you and your family have gone through in the past few months and frankly are still going through. And, uh, you know, we collectively as a society are in this time that is incredibly unique and challenging and we have to deal with so much stuff right now. Um, you know, I've heard you talk in interviews and things like, you consider yourself a uh, a social music activist. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I guess I'm wondering, like, what time is it for you right now? Like, what do you sense that this moment is about for you as a person and as an artist, as a as a contributor to our culture and our society and our country and, mm -hmm. and all that? Man, whoo, man. There's so much going on for me and, and this country that, again, we talked about it earlier, where most of the time you don't have to pay attention to the bullshit that's actually here. And most of the time you could, you, you know, you can bypass it. You can, you can be busy enough to not see it. But now hmm. we actually have to pay attention to, to the injustice, the, the, the overwhelming injustice um that that's here um the overwhelming hate the the overarching um inequalities that 
exist in our society. For me, as a, as an activist, as a person who's a, a victim of this stuff um, and all of it, but I won't be marginalized by it. I'll speak on it and I'll, I'll 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 talk about it and I'll write about it and I'll you know be a voice, um, be an activist ultimately, um, because I believe that change um, can happen and I, I feel like change is imminent because it has to be because um, it has to happen because. I don't know. At this point, it's just it's just too ridiculous. So um, as an artist, um, I use this music as a tool, as a platform to help educate people who would never even even have um, sensibilities to know what's going on. Um, You know, as as a jazz musician, when I play in different clubs or whatever, different um, situations, most of the people there um have the means and access to be there Hmm. but so many people are going through because i'm from ferguson um you know where the idea of black lives matter um between that florida with trayvon martin and the thing that happened with mike brown um started this movement black lives matter so i knew about what happens to black people as they get pulled over Cause I've been one of those black guys that got pulled over and strip searched and, you know, taken into jail for nothing, no charge, no, no anything, just literally being violated. So to me, this movement is very real. It's not something, again, I'm all, I'm always trying to be authentic. I'm not just talking some shit that I don't know about. I'm not just jumping on the bandwagon and saying that, you know what? I think the cool thing to do is to talk black power. The cool thing to do is to talk black lives matter. No, this is real. You know, just like it takes me a long time to put a project together, just like it takes me a long time to get a theme that 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 ties my projects together. I have to go through it before I can actually express it. So for me, Mm. um, the last couple of months when my son was, you know, accosted and, and attacked and it was, you know, it went viral. It's like, man. This is not nothing that's new. It's been happening all the time. We just actually have to pay attention to it now. Or it was actually caught on tape. You know, we have things like Emmett Till that happened that wasn't caught on tape, but you know what happened, you know? But you also Mm -hmm. know that the person who wrongfully accused him is still alive, walking around freely. So where's the justice? How do we find justice? How do we use music? Um, How do we use music um, to bring these people together? How do we use music to, to jog our thoughts? How do we use music to, to give people an opportunity um, to discuss biases that we might have that we don't even know? Because our society has taught us so much, taught us so much good, but also taught us so much bullshit at the same time. So how do we you know honestly deal with those things? Um, it's somewhere where I am, musically um, and you know, in, in thought not just musically, but just as a human, just as a father, as a person, as a friend, as a brother, as a person, you know, who witnesses these um, outrageous, egregious things every day, you know, over the last two days, well, we're dealing with the George Floyd trial, but then, then, um, then this, this other kid, you know, Dante Wright gets killed, you know, just ridiculous. And this stuff has to stop. (laughs) No, I hear you, man. I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's so much to it. But for me, music is important. 
but it's not everything. Humanity is is, is everything. Mm. So how do we merge those two? How do we curate these two to exist in the same plane that we can use music to create awareness? So that's where I am right now. Mm. Yeah, I hear you, man. Um, you were telling me earlier that you started a nonprofit recently, and I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that because I think it speaks exactly to what you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we are launching a foundation um, called Music Against Bias. Um, yeah, we, we, we're, we're launching a foundation. Obviously, it had a lot to do um, with what me and my son went through, um, but not just me and my son, but so many kids um, that are racially profiled and, you know, not just racially profiled, but sexually profiled and, you know, um, you know, for their disabilities are looked at and, and people's biases affect the way these people are treated. And they ended up, you know, being treated, you know, so disrespectfully or, or hurt um, or killed, you know, for no good reason. So we want to start very young, you know, because I, I feel racism is a grown up problem being, you know, mm. um, that, that's what you've already learned and what you've already internalized. So we can go start with the kids, you know, you know, <laughs> before the third grade, you yeah. know, um, and really start talking about these different issues. You know, some people might ask, you know what, can I touch your hair? It's nothing wrong with touching my hair, but if I'm not ready for it, that can cause a, situ a situation, mm -hmm. you know, or there's so many different little nuances to it that, 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 that spawn bigger issues. But if we talk about it early and deal with it and put it out there, you know, we can create, you know, a more progressive way of looking at race if we start early. And 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 it's actually a safe space. So I want to create a safe space with this music against bias that we can have these conversations, you know, from a young age to older as well. I mean, we've all, always heard you can't teach an old dog new tricks. That's true. Um sometimes, not all the time, but I feel like we can take some time and really start with our youth, you know, with your kids, my kids and, you know, other people's kids and we can really start having these issues because we really are more alike than we are different. We really totally. do um, aspire for similar things when it comes down to it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, sometimes ignorance, sometimes biases, sometimes racism just stop the, stops us from, from doing the most, um, doing the most basic things you know, which, which stop the amazing things that could happen in our world. So, yeah, man, I hear you 100%. Uh, you know, I just got to say, man, how much respect and admiration I have for you, not only for enduring all that you've endured in the last six months or whatever it's been, but how you are using your platform as an artist and as a person of influence to do the kinds of things that you're doing. Mm. Um, I think it's so important. And, and I just want to let you know, personally, from my side of things, uh, if there's anything that I can do to support you and this organization, um, I would love to do that. So just let me know. My man. So I've got one more question for you. Um, I guess I'm wondering like how these recent experiences for you and your family, uh, like what might be happening in you artistically or on the horn right now in the midst of all that? Like, 
like what's it been like for you playing in the midst of all this and you know making music and working on some new stuff I, I know you said that you were working on some stuff earlier like I guess I'm just curious how you see all this coming into your music man um to me it's a natural progression again I would you know memorialize like I wrote the song for Mike Brown on my last record um called MB Lament you know um and it's more anthemic and it's more of memorializing and lamenting a soul. Um, it's it's different though, when I have to do it for myself. You know, mm -hmm. when I'm writing for somebody else, you know, I'm invested, but not totally invested um, because I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm empathizing, but I'm not going through it. I can feel it, but it's not totally mine. You know, right. it's not totally my story. I'm in a position now to where it's my story that I'm writing about. So it's, mm -hmm. I think it's a little bit harder <laughs> to write your own story. Um, because again, when you're looking for authenticity, the story is there, but how do you, how do you, how do you say it in a way that, um, I don't know, how do you say it in a way that, that you're not even amping it up? How do you put it out there? So that that's 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 where I'm, what I'm dealing with. Again, you know, going back to everything we said, I'm always looking for the best way and the, and the perfect timing and to find the ultimate truth, curate all of the things that are happening and put that into one project. That is, you know, where I am. That's what I'm thinking about. So I've been blessed. Like I have wrote this this one song, um, and it ha it's it it had a different route. But I was slow to put it out. I didn't even want to put it out. I thought it was good, but I didn't want to put it out because, again, the imposter syndrome says that wasn't totally my story. But since I've gone through, you know, what I've gone through with my son um, and the things that are happening now, I'm a part of that movement. I'm a part of, like, the forefront of what that is. So now mm. I don't feel like an imposter anymore. I can I can say this. I can play this. I can you know, bring about the elements and say the things that really affect me, you know, um, yeah. and affect other people, you know, um, and, and that is a crazy, crazy realization, you know, and, and, and a realization that, you know, my struggles, what we're going through is bigger than me now, you know, it's unbelievable. Like this thing is going all over the world in the context of, thank God, me and my son, nothing happened to, we didn't get killed. We did get attacked though. Mm -hmm. We didn't get killed, um, but but we were able to open up conversations, which is so important for change. You know, when something happens, yeah, but when you actually have the ability to have a conversation about it and, and, and you know, touch people's mind and, and heart um, and, and change hearts and minds, we can really start to move to a, to a, a, a better society. So I'm, I'm happy to be a part of that. And my music will reflect that always. Mm, man. Well, man, for whatever it's worth, uh, I feel like this is a really special moment, not only for all of us right now, but especially for you and your family. And on the one hand, what happened shouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, as you're saying, we all have work to do to make things change and we got to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, what's beautiful to me is that you're still here 
talking about it and making music from it. Mm-hmm. And that to me, I mean, I just know that whatever comes out of this for you is, it's going to be really heavy and powerful and, and I'm sure you can feel it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's the kind of stuff that to me transcends everything else. Like, okay, yeah, I'm going to put out a record, you know, it's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no, it's so much deeper when you've gone through what you've gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I, I'm just really looking forward to whenever the time is right to share what you've been working on and, and what's going on in you artistically. Um, I think it's going to be really impactful for everyone, hmm. whether they know your story or not, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, man. It's, you know, it comes down to it. What's the, what, what is the message? You know, mm-hmm. what is the message? After you've learned all of this stuff, you know, you've heard all of the greatest from Brahms to, I don't know, Scriabin to to all of these things, amazing music, amazing art, amazing, you know, philosophers. Um, you know, at the end of the day, how do you curate all of that beauty um and darkness to make something special? How do you how do you what is your message? What is your gist? of all of that, um, mm-hmm. you know, how, how do you do that? And I think as an artist, I think it's our duty to be able to, to, you know, take those things and spin out something from it, whatever it is. Because I, I, I think that's, you know, just very important for us to do, you know? Yeah, man, 100%. Well, man, thanks so much. This has been such a pleasure Get to hang and chat. My man, it's such a pleasure to talk to you for real, 100%. And and I guess um, if anybody wants to know, you know, how to um, um, support the the new um, the new endeavor, Music Against Bias, just follow me on Instagram or all of my social media, Keon Harold, um, and you will be updated about what we're going to be doing um, in, the, in the very near future. Yeah, man, for sure. Man, what a beautiful, holistic picture of what a trumpet player is supposed to be, right? I mean, not only is Keon totally serious about his craft and honest to who he is as a person, as an artist, uh, you know, he's put together all those influences into something that's unique to him. And on top of that, he's using his music and the platform he's earned through it to do the kind of things that he's doing, especially in the face of oppression and, and like serious hardship that he's had to endure. Uh, man, I just admire Keon so much and I think we should do whatever we can as the trumpet community to support him and support this new organization that he started music against bias. So stay tuned to his social media pages for sure. All right. Episode seven is coming up in a couple weeks. Another amazing conversation with the great Dave Douglas. You guys don't want to miss it. We'll see you in a couple weeks.